Today we're beginning a new series in the book of Mark. Uh, Mark is kind of centered around this question that happens in chapter 8 where Jesus says to Peter, who do you, well, to all the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter gives this amazing response, um, hence the title, Mark, who do you say I am? Across the course of our preaching, we try and do um, a few different things, I guess. We try and give you a nice varied diet. Sometimes we look at something topical or thematic, a bit like we did with the spheres of society recently. Sometimes we look at a book of the Bible in an overview kind of a sense. We did that with Nehemiah, not every single verse, but kind of the big building blocks. Um, sometimes we look at whole books like Colossians and Jonah. You can find all this on our website. Sometimes short passages in loads of detail. We did that with Acts 2 um, and the Father's Prodigals from Luke 15. And Sometimes we preach standalone or vision kind of talks. Um, all the while we're trying to be led by the Holy Spirit, right? He's the one that brings the scriptures to life in us. Um, we want to listen to what he has to say. But we want to do uh, all sorts of things with scripture. We want to look at it from every angle and sometimes look at individual verses and sometimes look at the big picture, zooming in and zooming out. And today we're beginning a series that will run for a long time. We don't really know how long it's going to run for um, because we're going to work through verse by verse and passage by passage through the Gospel of Mark. Other things will kind of come and go, but if there's weeks in between or, or whatever, we'll fill it in with another section of Mark so that hopefully over the next year or so, we get through the whole thing from start to finish uh, and go through each and every single verse because we don't want to be the kind of Christians that just pull the bits off the shelf that we like, the bits that we're comfortable with. There'll be some really uncomfortable bits in what Mark has to say, but we believe it's scripture, we believe it's God-breathed, and we believe that we need to hear it, even if it confronts something in us. So we're going to go through each and every single bit of it. I was uh, recently hearing from um, a theological college leader. We went to a meeting, Jason and I, with him, and he said that at the beginning of each year, he asks all these people training for ministry, um, how many people have read the Bible from cover to cover at some point in their life? And I think it was like 30%, he said. People training for ministry have read the Bible from cover to cover about 30% at any point in their life. And then he said, and who's done it more than once? You know, you've read it through twice or more, and it was something like one in 10. Knowledge of the scriptures is low amongst believers all over the West. And so taking a gospel and going all the way through it is part of our attempt, part of our response to say that we believe that what we have here is a treasure trove of goodness and truth about God. And we want to mine every single bit of it. I know that for some of us reading scripture and long portions of scripture is difficult. Maybe it's taxing, but we believe that what we have here is truth and it's power and it's goodness because it leads us straight to Jesus. And we want to be the kind of church that takes this seriously. So that's what we're going to do as we consider this gospel for the next however long it might be. Just a word to say before we open Mark and read the first passage about how we come to gospels themselves. What are they, these four accounts that we have? Before reading this opening portion, a couple of primers, I guess, about what the Gospels are and what Mark is, just to set the scene for us. Mark, as you know, you may well know, is one of four Gospels, and Gospels are a kind of a special kind of biography, I guess. If we were to follow a celebrity or someone today, they might have a biography written about them that would go through where they were born and who their parents were and what their early influences were and all that kind of stuff. This is a special kind of biography because it doesn't necessarily do 
everything. As we'll see, Mark jumps in when Jesus is already 30 years old and doesn't give us anything really before that. It's a special kind of biography. And it's important to say as well that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all different. They've all got their own different writing style, their own texture, you might say, their own reason for being written. And sometimes it's good to kind of blend them together and to see where they agree and what they all say. But other times it's quite helpful just to focus in on one so that it doesn't become meshed in with everything else. But we see the individual purpose of Mark, not John, as good as John is, and we could well do that at some point. One scholar described it almost like four different portraits of the same person, but they're in a slightly different scene or they're in a different phase of their life doing a slightly different thing. And it's not that we blend them all together, you know, look at four and mesh them into one, but sometimes it's appropriate just to look at each individual portrait and see what does that show us about who Jesus is that's different from this one, but complementary because we believe that they all point to the same Lord and God. Mark is written by uh, a guy called Mark or John Mark. You'll sometimes see him referred to as. He's a partner of Peter and Paul, and he compiles and and organizes and presents most of the recollections uh, of Jesus that came through Peter. Peter didn't write his own gospel, uh, but John Mark is thought to have kind of used a lot of Peter's material, presented it to us so that we get to see who Jesus really is. It's believed to be the gospel that was written first, the earliest to the event itself. And it's thought that the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke and John, probably had a copy of Mark when they wrote their gospels. We don't know that completely, but it's you know, unreliable evidence that we think that's what's happened. Um, one of the commentaries I read uh, about this in the week said that we don't need to be worried about that as if we're kind of checking for plagiarism, you know, because plagiarism is praise. That was how they put it. If it's good and Matthew thinks it's good, he's just copied it across um, because they all want to highlight the main things about Jesus. But it is the one that's written first, closest to the event, with the shortest amount of time between what happened and it being written down. And so I think there's something powerful for us in that, that we're getting as undiluted an account of Jesus as it's possible that there is. And Mark is uh, 661 verses of unrelenting pace. It's very quick. It moves fast. It presents a lot of information. It has these vivid encounters in it where Jesus confronts evil or there's conflict and there's amazing things that happen. It's a, a gospel of power, of dunamis, of dynamite, as is often said. And it's urgent in its movement. It doesn't kind of meander through life and ponder and pontificate. It just goes bang, bang, bang and presents us with the urgency of the gospel. It's brief and direct and punchy, you might say. It's concrete more than it's abstract. John is the more abstract one, talking about the word that moved into the neighborhood and the word made flesh and these amazing concepts. Mark is a bit more, here's what happened. Here's what Jesus said. What do you make of it? He's direct and he's confronting in a good way with what Jesus did. And it's also interesting that Mark is much more about action than about teaching. Mark doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount or anything like that, this long extended teaching from Jesus. He does have some parables, but not as many as the other Gospels comparatively. But he has much more action. Here's what Jesus did. Here's a person that he met. Here's what he said. Here's what he did. Here's a healing that he brought about. And he presents them all so that we get to see who Jesus really is. 
as we approach Gospels in general, as we approach Mark particularly, there's a helpful quote that will come on the screen by a biblical scholar who tells us the posture, I guess, for us to have as we read the Gospels. Richard Burridge, uh, an old tutor of mine in London, says, the Gospels invite readers to enter their world, to listen to Jesus' words, to watch his great deeds, to appreciate their understanding of him, and to ask ourselves the same questions as the people in the text. Who is this man? That's a direct quote from Mark 4, as you can see. But the Gospels invite us to enter, in this case, Mark's world. The invitation is to listen to Jesus' words through this lens, to watch Jesus' deeds, and I guess to ask ourselves, who do we say Jesus is? That's the question that he presented to everyone that he came across. And that's the question that he's still putting to us here and now. Who is Jesus? And what difference will you let that make in your life? So let's read the opening portion of Mark, which will be on the screen if you need it. Or you can open it up for yourself. This is Mark 1, 1 to 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. He, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Ancient biographies like Mark didn't have a blurb, if you like, or a synopsis. You know when you turn to the back of the book to see roughly what it's going to be about. They didn't have executive summaries or abstracts. So you need to look really carefully at the opening line or couple of lines, because that's kind of their equivalent. The first thing that you say is kind of the most important, and that's what everything else is going to be working to support. And so it's really interesting here that the opening line, the only time that we get Mark's own opinion, if you like, his own belief, it says the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The only time we get Mark's own belief is right there. And then the rest of the gospel, if you like, is working to support that claim. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and this is good news, and everything that comes is making the case for that claim. So Mark's belief then, Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. The Greek word for anointed one is Christ. So you often see Jesus Christ, that isn't his surname, that's his title, it's telling us about him. He is the anointed one. And Messiah is the Hebrew for the same term. They're synonyms, I guess, in different languages. 
So right at the beginning, Jesus makes the claim that Jesus is the anointed one of God. God's own son, potentially added later, and that this is good news, gospel, about him. Sometimes people think that the further on you get in the Christian life, the questions get more and more complicated. You know, you go off to theological college and you're constantly arguing about premillennialism or postmillennialism or the Godhead and all these important, weighty, lofty things. More and more, I see it a little bit the opposite, that the further on you go on in the Christian life, actually the simpler the questions get, but the bigger the implications. Let me give you an example. Is God good? It's a very straightforward question. It doesn't involve lots of scholarly debate or textual criticism or all these things that we could put to it. But the implications of the question, or the answer rather, to is God good, define the rest of how you approach him. The question is very simple, but the answer is really significant. If God is good, which I believe he is, then everything that we hear from him, see from him, everything that he does, says, is, is good, even when that's challenging to us, because his version of goodness looks different to our own. I don't think the Christian life is about the questions getting bigger, if you like. Sometimes it's about them getting smaller, but living more and more fully based on the implications. If you really built your life based on a positive answer to, is God good?, it would be wild because you know that everything he does, everything that he says is for you. Now, why do I say that? Well, who is Jesus is another very straightforward question. Who is he? What is he? Is he who he claimed to be? Is he not? Is he God? Is he not? The question is very simple, but the implication is incredible. Many people would say that Jesus is the most influential person that ever lived. Time magazine put it like that when they profiled him. Mark here is giving us an answer to that very simple question. But the answers and how far we live into them dictate everything else. Mark says Jesus is the anointed one. Now yes, we can be anointed by the Holy Spirit But Jesus is the anointed one, anointed on a different level, to a different plane, if you like. He is the Son of God. Jesus is Lord, I guess, is another simple question with a massive answer. That was what set the the Romans against the the way, the followers of Jesus, because they said Jesus is Lord, and they said Caesar is Lord, and immediately you get this confrontation and this clash. The questions might be simple. Who is Jesus? But the answers have massive implications. And all the way throughout this gospel, themes of identity. Who is Jesus? What does that mean? Is he really who he said he is? How do we link him to what's gone on in the past? And how does he play into the future? Questions of identity play their way in throughout this wonderful gospel. In the opening line then, Mark sets out his stall. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He's his only anointed one. He's the only son of God. There isn't another. Jesus is the biggest, the best, the boldest good news for you and for me and for all the world. And the rest of his gospel, as I've said, is trying to back that claim up. So moving on then, after that opening line comes very quickly this introduction of prophets and the prophetic. 
Mark starts by laying out the case for Jesus being the Messiah by looking back to the Old Testament, the prophetic writings about Jesus that come right at the end of our Old Testament. They were cherished by the Jews as a picture of who the Messiah was that they were waiting for. They were reading it and trying to build a character profile, if you like, so that when people came along and claimed to be the Messiah, they could say, well, you don't meet this criteria, so we reject you. They'd been waiting about 400 years at this point for the Messiah to come. They had all these promises that seemed to have gone quiet, if you like. The promises had kind of stopped. We know who it is. We're just waiting for them to appear. And then Mark quotes, and he quotes from two different prophets, even though he says he's quoting from Isaiah. He also quotes from Malachi. Malachi 3 verse 1 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then Isaiah 40, verse 3, as he says, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And just briefly, I want to look at those quotes, if you like, in a bit more detail, because I think what they then go on to say is really significant. We'll start with Malachi, Chris, if you could put us there. Malachi 3 begins in verse 1, as I've said, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. What I think Malachi is saying here, what I think Mark is picking up by quoting it in his gospel is there will be a messenger and then the Lord who you are seeking will come. Hold that in the back of your mind because it's going to be really important for who comes next. And it says that this person that's going to come will be a refiner, will be a cleaner, will be a purifier, cleaning up and cleansing the temple and the people of God. This person isn't just coming to pat people on the back. He's coming to refine them. And if you refine a metal, you heat it up, and you let all the impurities rise to the surface, and then you scoop them off. It's not a pleasant experience. Your insides are being boiled, if you like, and the stuff that you really wish no one else could see is coming to the surface. That is what this messenger, the the person who comes after this messenger rather, is here to do, to clean, to refine, to purify. I think Mark picks up on that as he goes on. Jumping then to Isaiah 40. As I've said, he quotes verse 3, but then goes on to say some interesting things which I think are implied in the gospel as well. Isaiah 40 verse 3, a voice of one calling In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, 
but the word of our God endures forever. In the middle of this quote, it says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. Now thinking about the glory of the Lord took me straight back to the Old Testament where Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. You've told me about it, but I want to see it now. If I'm going to go and do all these things with Pharaoh and confront injustice and lead your people, I kind of want to see you before it happens. And it was basically impossible for people in the Old Testament to see the glory of God and not die. Moses got himself hidden in a rock and saw the back of God passing by. He got the smallest glimpse of the smallest fraction of God and was so undone by it. He came down from the mountain and his face was shining so much that people had to put a veil over him because they were getting blinded by it. The glory of God was so big, so powerful. God is so holy that we couldn't see him and live. And yet here, it says the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The glory of the Lord contained in the person Jesus, the fullness of the presence of God, was able to walk around and talk to people, evil people, immoral people. And they weren't killed in that moment. They actually got the chance to talk back, to have their prayers answered to have their bodies healed, their minds restored. The glory was revealed and people saw it together. And then goes on to say, the grass withers, the flowers fall. The people are like grass, meaning that they will wither too. Mark is an urgent gospel, as I've said. And I think we get a hint of it in this quote here. The grass will fall, the flowers will fail. Things will come and things will go. Your life will end. And in the span of God and his eternity, our life is just a breath. There's an urgency about what Mark's trying to do, which he picks up throughout the gospel, and we need to heed. We're not going to be around forever. Are you right with God? Because he is the one that will be around forever. And then he goes on to say, the grass withers, the flowers fall but the word of God endures forever. The word and promises of God stand firm. The prophecy from centuries earlier is now being fulfilled. And I want to encourage you to collect, if you like, the words that might have been spoken over you at different points in your life. Bill Johnson, the leader of Bethel Church in Redding, California, he says that he regularly goes back over the prophecies that have been spoken over him and over the church that he leads because he wants to be so cons- uh, immersed in them that he's able to see where God's at work. If people have said things over you that weren't just their own encouragements, they had the weight of the glory of God. What I'd encourage you to do and what I've been trying to do for a while is to pull them all into one place, like a notebook or a Google Doc or whatever you use, And whenever you get a chance, just skim them. See what was it that God said when you were a new believer, when he was charting your course for your ministry in life? What was it that someone said when you were at your lowest ebb that might still be being worked into now? We've got a book in our office here where we try and do that for the church. You know, what have people said this church is going to be? Because we want to be able to look back through it to be full of these words of the Lord that will stand forever. Yes, this is scripture, the ultimate, the authoritative words of God, but God still speaks and his promises are still kept. And though we will fail, we will fall. Our life is a breath of vapor. 
God's words stand forever. Immerse yourself in them. Don't let them be out of your mind, your heart, because they're fuel for the life that you want, that God wants you to lead. They're the vision that he wants you to work towards. So, having quoted these two prophets, and I think all the, the things that are brought with uh, those quotes considered, Mark now introduces a prophet. Every detail of John the baptizer reminds us of the prophets of old. So John appeared in the wilderness, that's very Old Testament prophet-like, preaching about repentance, forgiveness, and turning to God. He's dressed quite like Elijah in this strange clothing with an odd diet. And people confessed to him, were baptized by him, and heard his message. And John's message was, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's saying, I'm not the main event. Don't come out to the countryside, the wilderness to see me. After me comes the one that you really need. After me comes the one that you're ultimately looking for. My role is to to get you ready for him. That you're confessed and you've repented and you're baptized. You're ready to meet the one who you've been waiting for. I used to play a lot of rugby and... Um, when I was probably about 16, uh, we played for quite a good school team. And we had this one arch rival team, you know, like every school does. This team were really, really, really hard to beat, but we did occasionally beat them. But it was always a really close game. And I remember, I think I must have been in sixth form by this point. And our new head of rugby, our PE teacher, used to teach at this arch rival school. And he'd come to us over the summer. Big news, big drama when you're 16, 17. And it's the day before the game, I think it was the semi-final of the County Cup, and he got the whole squad into the changing room to give us a very early pep talk a day before the game was going to happen. And what he'd done is that he'd rang his old school, our arch rivals, and said, look, what's your team sheet? You know, who's going to be playing? Because he knew who they were, we really didn't. And so he got this list, here's who we're going to play, uh, here's who's made the team for this big semi-final. So he starts reading the names out, and we didn't really recognise any of them. A few of them we'd met or played with on other teams or whatever. And then he got to the second rows, this uh, middle of the pack, if you're a forward uh, or a fan of rugby. And he reads out their names, here's who's starting for this college that were our rivals. And then, I guess, to try and G us up, uh, he keeps on saying, those two, they're not fit to lace Holmesy's boots. Now, Holmes was one of our best players, right? He went on to play professionally and then semi-professionally. He's only just retired now. And he was a really good player of ours. And he kept saying, they're not fit to lace Holmes's boots. And I was sat there genuinely thinking, why on earth would Holmes need lace in his boots? The picture I had was almost like a doily as an insole. I was like, why would he need lace? I was thinking, he's obviously trying to pep us up, but I've got no idea what this metaphor is. Now, I now see that what he was saying was this guy wasn't good enough to lace his boots. You know, he wasn't a patch on him. He was no in here as good. We should be encouraged because our players were better than his. But at the time, I was thinking, why does he need a doily for an insole? Anyway, John says very much here, that he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. He's not worthy to put the laces in his boots. He's not even 
worthy to get anywhere near them. He says he's not worthy to stoop down. He's not even worthy enough to get near doing the job. This person who John speaks about is of a different order, a different kind. He's holy. Changing sandals, untying them, washing feet was the job for the most junior of the lowest servant. And John's saying, I'm not even worthy enough to get near doing that job compared with the holiness and the righteousness of this God who you're about to meet. John's a fascinating character, and I just really want to say three things quickly about what he said and what he did here that I think have consequence for us and consequence as we go on reading this gospel. John, firstly, is the kind of hinge, if you like, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. John was a really significant character. He was mentioned by early historians like Josephus. Uh, He was well known. He got the whole countryside and the whole of Jerusalem to come out and speak to him. This would have caused a big stir. And he baptized Jesus, which we'll unpack more next week. And he acts, like I've said, as the hinge, if you like, between the Old Testament and the New. He's the one that kind of holds the two together and bridges these two worlds, if you like. He's a prophet of old, looks like Elijah, eats this crazy diet, wanders around the desert, proclaims these amazing messages. So he picks up all of that tradition, if you like. He reminds the people of what was said long ago. Don't forget what's in your scriptures. I know it was 400 years ago, but don't forget this picture that we were painted of the Messiah that we were looking for. And then he says, I'm the messenger that's going to come just before the fulfillment. I'm the one that says he's really, really close. I'm not him, but I'm really close to him. The fulfillment of all of those prophecies is near. John is the kind of the one that hangs the two together, that holds the two together. Mark Strauss, a biblical scholar, puts it really well. He says that John the Baptist has one foot in the age of promise and one in the age of fulfillment. He's the one that bridges the two. He and Mark are tying everything that's to come with Jesus to everything that's already been in the Old Testament. Sometimes people have this perception that we're just New Testament people, right? Everything that came before, Mark is at pains to say, no, 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 we're picking all of that up and here's its fulfillment. We're picking all of that up and here's how it's going to work itself out. We need to heed that message too. Jesus picks up this long thread and says, I'm its fulfillment. The promises, the, the law, the poetry, the history, everything that's in there is for us. Yes, Jesus has changed some of it. Yes, the age is different and we need to read it carefully to know what our responsibility is with it. But John is the hinge between the two. And Mark is saying, don't give up any of that. The end of Revelation says that anyone that adds a word or takes a word away from Scripture, there are going to be big consequences for. John, firstly, then, is the kind of hinge between the two. One foot in the age of promise, one in the age of fulfillment. He's the one that says the fulfiller is almost here. Second thing with John is that John proclaimed the message and the people flocked to him. I don't know if you saw that in the reading, but he was in the wilderness, in the desert, and the people came to him, the whole Judean countryside and the whole city of Jerusalem. Now, they probably didn't all come on one day, or else the motorway would have been jammed, it would have been awful. 
But the Judean countryside and the whole city found their way out to the wilderness, miles away from where they lived, probably really inconvenient to get to, without food, water, all the stuff that you'd expect in a city. How come all those people end up out there? Maybe it was a bit of novelty. Maybe they were bored and this was the thing to do, to go and hear this fiery preacher in the desert and see what people made of it. But that's quite a crowd to find a lone preacher prophet miles away from where they live. I think what happened is that so compelling, if you like, was John's message that crowds flocked because they heard in him something they'd never heard before or in quite the same way. So compelling was his lifestyle, his invitation to confession and repentance and baptism that people flocked to him. Now, John was part of a a Reformation kind of movement within Judaism at the time. There were different streams of Judaism, if you like, and John was very much of one of them that said, we need to repent. We need to change. We're getting complacent, and we need not to be that. He was calling for a change of life. He was up in the ante, if you like. And Jesus, as we'll see, associated with that. That's quite significant because of everything that Jesus would then go on to say and do. And to me at the moment, it feels and looks and the stats would say that Christianity in the West, at least, is a bit like it's in the wilderness. It's been pushed out to one side by people. They don't want our framework for life. They don't really want our our morals or our, our moral framework. They like it where it's convenient for them. But really, the heart of it, the root of it, if you like, they've tried to push to one side. Christianity in the West feels like it's out in the wilderness, not in the center of the city, but pushed to one side, tolerated maybe, but increasingly actually rejected and despised. John reminds us that our task is to live with Jesus as Messiah, to proclaim him as Lord, and then to trust the results to God, I guess. I believe that if we live and pray and proclaim this message faithfully, people will come to us. Now, of course, we go to them, the Great Commission. I'm not saying we just wait. Of course, our job is to beg the question. It's to get involved in society in the spheres that we've been preaching through the last little while. But I think what John says is when the message is so different to what everyone else is hearing... People will come here because they'll say, hang on a minute, what is going on here that I don't find anywhere else? The tide will turn. The gospel still changes lives. The power of God is active and at work and unchanged. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Tim Keller, the great pastor and author and writer, passed away a few weeks ago. And there have been various tributes kind of attributed to him, last encounters or the most important thing that he ever said to someone. And I saw one of them online and it said the thing with Tim was that he never sought to build a platform for himself. He wasn't really the kind of front man of a movement. He just proclaimed the message again and again and again from this angle and that angle and this gospel and that gospel. And it said the stage kind of built itself because it wasn't really about him. It was about the message. God said that this is true about you, that he loves you even though he knows everything about you. And the message kind of built the platform for itself. I think that's kind of what John did here. He just let the message be the message. And people came to him because they found something pure and true and compelling and transformative and life-changing in it. 
And though it feels at the moment, like I've said, as though Christianity is out in the wilderness, the tide will turn. People are desperate to hear. Because every other promise that they've tried to live into will let them down, whether it has done yet or not. It will fail them. It will leave them hungry and searching and unsatisfied. And Jesus is the bread of life that will satisfy everyone forever. Finally then, John from the outset talks about baptism. He says, I will baptize with water, but he, the one that will come after me, will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John knew what he could do, and he knew what only God could do. He knew his part was to baptize with water and to point to the one that could baptize with the Holy Spirit. I know I can do this, and God's the only one that can do that. He was very clear where the separation of responsibilities lied. Baptism is about immersion. It's about being drenched. It's about being consumed in and with. And he says, I'll do that with water. But soon one will come who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Even before Jesus has arrived on the scene in Mark's gospel, Mark is pointing to the central importance of being baptized, filled, refilled, immersed in and with the Holy Spirit. Even before Jesus is on the scene, John is here saying, you need this Holy Spirit. And yes, Jesus presents him to us, tells us what he's here to do. Talks about the order in which I'll ascend and then he will descend. Yes, there's lots more to come, but even from the earliest announcement, the Holy Spirit is the one that John is pointing to, to to say this is the one that you need to be immersed in. He's the one that you need for your power. He's the one that you need for the perspective that we find in him. He's the energizing factor, if you like, that will keep you going in this new way of life. Margaret Silf, a writer, author, retreat leader, she speaks about this and likens it to when you're uh, learning a new language and they say to be immersed in it, don't they, to go and live within it. And she says that requires us to surrender completely to new language and cease to think and speak in our own. Pentecost is a total immersion experience that fills us with the Spirit who pours out of us words everyone can hear. Pentecost, which we celebrated uh, in terms of it as an annual event last week, but something that we live into each day, each time we invite the Spirit to fill us again, is a total immersion experience that fills us with the Spirit, who pours out of us words that everyone can hear. Now, on the day of Pentecost, that was different languages, which meant they could communicate with every group. But I think what's going on here with John is that he was pouring forth speech that everyone could hear. The Judean countryside, the whole of Jerusalem, everyone who heard it heard about Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. Being immersed in him is the way that we learn this new language of God, if you like, to be able to speak words that cut people to the heart because of the power of God that rests on them. It's the Holy Spirit that causes crowds to flock to the wilderness. It's the Holy Spirit that brings about change in heart and spirit. So, with John the baptizer, may we proclaim faithfully and distinctively the way of Jesus. The opportunity to be immersed in the Holy Spirit and the invitation to be made right with Father God. Who is this man? He's the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie.
but who comes to wash your feet. Who is this man? He's the one who is the fulfillment of the prophets of old and of now. Who is this man? He is the anointed one of God who's come to anoint you with God's very presence yourself.